Welcome to Fertility and Sterility on Air, the podcast where you can stay current on the latest global research in the field of reproductive medicine. This podcast brings you an overview of this month's journal, in-depth discussion with authors, and other special features. FNS on Air is brought to you by the Fertility and Sterility family of journals in conjunction with the American Society for Reproductive Medicine. Hello and welcome to another episode of FNS on Air. My name is Pietro Bordletto, media editor for Fertility and Sterility Reports, and today I'm joined by Kurt and Eve for the May 2022 edition, Volume 117, Issue 5. Kurt and Eve, how are you? Wonderful. It's great to be back for another episode. Yeah, it's great to see both of you, and we're looking forward to having Micah join us back next month. I know. I've been getting a lot of fan mail asking where he is, but stay tuned, listeners. In the June episode, you'll get to hear him again. Well, we have a lot to cover in this Fertility and Sterility May issue. Kurt, you're leading us off with an article about ovarian cancer after BSO in women with endometriosis. Tell us more. Thank you, Pietro. I was really excited that we chose this article to cover because it's a little bit out of the norm. We'll get back to ART and fertility treatment shortly, but this one is something I thought that all gynecologists, which are all of us, should understand. The article is titled Incidence of Ovarian Cancer After Bilateral Salpingo-Oophorectomy in Women with Histologically Proven Endometriosis by a wonderful group of authors. The first author is Dr. Hermans and the senior author, Dr. Beckers. And this is a collaboration out of the Netherlands and out of Belgium. So you might be asking yourself, why are we talking about ovarian cancer and fertility and sterility? Um, well, I think what piqued my eye in this one is we're really kind of talking about the risk of ovarian cancer and how to prevent it in women with endometriosis, which is clearly our bread and butter. And it's just some fun facts to remember that um, compared to the quoted rate of lifetime risk of ovarian cancer in the general populations, which is around 1.3%, it has been demonstrated, although I'm not sure the number is exactly correct, that the risk of developing ovarian cancer if a woman is diagnosed with endometriosis is at least two to three times higher than that. And endometriosis is particularly associated with low-grade serious cancers, endometrioid cancers, and a very serious cancer, clear cell cancer. So this paper is asking a pretty specific question, which is what would happen if we removed a women's ovaries that had endometriosis and would it actually have an effect on ovarian cancer uh, in the long run? So this and is a, a large at epidemiologic study using a Dutch pathology database. They collected women from a long period of time, from 1990 to 2015, and it has almost 8,000 women with proven endometriosis and compares the incidence of ovarian cancer to those with a histologic diagnosis of endometriosis who underwent a BSO and also to women that are considered controls um, in that they were in the database and they had a benign dermal nevus. So really what they're looking for is what is the um, rate of ovarian cancer in these women over time. They were able to link databases in the, um, Scandinavia, which I, I'm always jealous about, that they can get nationwide data. And then they can find out really what is the risk of cancer in each of these groups. Without going into the specifics of the actual numbers, what they found was that the age-adjusted incidence rate ratio was 0.34 when the BSO cohort was compared with the endometriosis cohort, meaning that the chance of finding a cancer in women with endometriosis was substantially reduced by almost 70% if you had a BSO compared to women with endometriosis that did not have a BSO. And when you compared the BSO cohort with the other control group, the age-adjusted IRR was about the same, 0.38. So I'm not sure we would be surprised that removing someone's ovaries with or without endometriosis reduces your risk of ovarian cancer. I think the, the answer is really kind of more comparative. Is this risk greater or smaller in, than in other women or other women with high risk for cancer? And also, the bulk of the paper appropriately describes, well, what does it mean to take out someone's ovaries? And what are the consequences? So, for example, the number needed to prevent or number needed to treat one woman with endometriosis was one needed to conduct 351 bilateral salpingoophorectomies. So that's a lot of surgery just for the opportunity to limit the chance of one cancer. Now, there is some interesting comparisons to put that in perspective before we open up into discussion. The estimated life 
lifetime risk for a woman with endometriosis, as I mentioned, is higher than not having uh, endometriosis, and it's around 2.5%. Now, if you take another high-risk group, like women with a, a BRCA gene, it's also been demonstrated that BSO makes a lot of sense. And with this group, they also find a similar risk in terms of reducing the risk of cancer. The benefit is that's a, such a high-risk group that the benefit appears better because you have such a lower intention to treat. So the debate here, and the reason I'd like to discuss in this paper, isn't that taking someone's ovaries out will reduce the risk of cancer. The risk is, is it worth taking out 235 people's ovaries to reduce one case of ovarian cancer associated with endometriosis? Now, the inkling is very well written by Dr. Romanowski, Bordalello, and Lindheim. And they talk about an analogy of when to hold them and when to fold them. And there's a really nice balance on whether it's worth taking somebody's ovaries out. I've always had this conversation, but it's a numerator and a denominator aspect. Most politicians and most surgeons are numerator people. They focus on that one person or the two people in the numerator, whereas public health officials, epidemiologists tend to be denominator-focused people, where they're really working about how many people in the denominator to get there. And it's an interesting balance to have this conversation um, because there are risks of BSO. There's, there's risk of premature morbidity. There's risks of bone density issues. There's risks of quality of life. And in this case, you might not be able to say, well, we can avoid many of those risks by giving estrogen add-back therapy because, again, the underlying condition of endometriosis. So interesting discussion is theoretical. I don't think this paper is telling us that you should or shouldn't remove people's ovaries. I think they're telling us that the association is there and we should think about it. And that's the main purpose for discussing this. So with that as a background, what do you guys think? I can't help but wonder what would have happened if the comparison group was just a risk reduction self-injectomy. Um, I think in that particular situation, you may have the benefit of retaining your ovaries from an HRT perspective with risk reduction for ovarian cancer because we know that a substantial proportion of those actually begin in the fallopian tube. So to me, I think this paper left more questions than answers. And I would ask the question, and I'd like to see somebody do this study, as to whether or not risk-reducing salpingectomy in a population of patients with endometriosis will prevent ovarian cancer in the future. And I think that's really what strikes the balance between morbidity and prevention of disease. Pietro, what do you think? Well, let me just jump in for a second, Eve, because I think it's a slightly you know, cliche apples versus oranges here, because although there is the hypothesis that some ovarian cancer starts from the fallopian tube, the association here is that the ovarian cancer is starting from the endometriosis in the ovary. And that's why you have different endometrioid and clear cell cancers, and it's differentiating itself from the run-of-the-mill ovarian cancer, if you will. So I'm not sure removing the tube and leaving the so-called hotspot of the endometriosis would be as risk-reducing, um, which is yeah, why this is I so would... intriguing. I would lean on our oncology colleagues. I mean, I, I just don't have the expertise to really know that, but can we definitely say that endometrioid ovarian cancer really truly arises in the ovary as opposed to the tube? Like, I, I don't know that that's, I don't know that that's true, Kurt. I, I agree with you, but that's the million dollar question here, right? Is the cancer associated with endometriosis different than any other woman? One thing that the study doesn't do, and I think the authors do a nice job of pointing it out in the limitation section, is that they don't actually stratify by staging or severity of disease. And I think to be able to answer Kurt and Eve's question, I'd want to know if we're talking about endometriosis that's involving the ovaries or endometriosis that's pretty benign disease in the peritoneum, or are we talking about big, heavy, deep infiltrating endometriosis that's very near and adjacent to the ovaries? Because to me, I think all of those things play into the risk of the malignant transformation that can happen in the ovary, I think. But until there's data to prove it, I'm still stuck, stuck with what you said. I have a lot of questions, not a whole lot of answers. I'll give you one more anecdote about this. I'm aware of a case of a woman that was 45 years old that went through a program looking for donor eggs. She didn't, she, she didn't get pregnant, um, but a year later, she was diagnosed with ovarian cancer and she had endometriosis, bilateral endometriomas. And of course, the settlement was multi-million dollars for misdiagnosis, and you should have followed up the endometrioma knowing that it was a high risk for cancer. This was 10 years ago, and I didn't even think we knew the association then. But now I'm even more concerned that a paper like this, not in a bad way, but a paper like this is going to convince people that we should remove the endometriosis for fear of that numerator. There was a paper that came out, and I don't remember when it came out, but I 
I believe it was from the University of Michigan, where they looked at all pathology slide samples in patients who had endometriosis and quantified the actual risk of cancer within uh, various types. And I need to go back and look at it, but it was something like one in a thousand risk of cancer. So I think we know that there is a slightly increased risk of cancer in these patients who have endometriosis and endometriomas, but I don't think that it warrants removal. Um, But I do worry from a medical legal perspective, and it is something that I counsel patients on and I'm very specific as to why we don't recommend removal in a situation where we see endometriomas. But I do think that that equation shifts a little bit in a 45-year-old who has really large endometriomas, who's using a donor egg. Um, Why would we leave it in place or why would we remove it? I think it just warrants, it comes down to counseling and it comes down to documentation of that counseling. Pietro? The number needed to harm here is the number that I think we should be talking about. If we were removing ovaries, and I think that the population average was 37, if we're removing ovaries in 37-year-olds, how much heart health, bone health, brain health are we sacrificing for one in every 250 cancers that we prevent by removing ovaries? To me, that, that math doesn't add up, and I don't think people are going to be really eager to take out ovaries to prevent cancer when you're sacrificing all of the potential benefits of having at least one ovary. So to bring this to a close, I think those are really excellent points. And again, this is why I love to see articles like this. And I like publishing articles like this. It really makes us think about this. Please don't use this article as definitive proof to say that I'm going to take out a woman's ovaries because she had endometriosis or I'm not going to take them out. This is the beginning of a conversation. And I hope that we'll have more articles that can help us make that clinical decision in the future. Eve, you have our ASRM pages again this month with an article looking at reproductive and infertility care in times of public health crisis, as well as an ethics committee opinion. So the first document that I'm going to cover is called Reproductive and Infertility Care in Times of Public Health Crisis, an Ethics Committee Opinion. This document describes an ethical decision-making framework that is necessary to provide reproductive and fertility care responsibly in times of public health crises. And boy, do I wish we had this document prior to the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic. As we all know, public health crises require a reassessment of clinical priorities and resource allocation across all fields of medicine to maximize the health of the population. The traditional principles of biomedical ethics, autonomy, beneficence, non-maleficence, and justice guide clinician-patient relationships. And in Western medicine, autonomy is often recognized as the most important of these principles. Clinicians highly value an individual's right to self-determination, and particularly in the context of reproductive rights. We all should have the right to reproduce when we want to reproduce. However, in the setting of pandemics and other public health crises, the balance of a clinician's duty of care must shift from the focus of the individual patients to a strategy that balances individual patient care with safeguarding the health of the population as a whole. And I think the COVID-19 pandemic, actually, I know that the COVID-19 pandemic really highlighted this. The shift towards community health impacted the provision of fertility care and created a lot of tension between individual and societal needs. The document outlines the issues at play with the following strategies, rationing healthcare, strategies for mitigation of the effects of rationing, and then finally, challenges of evolving health threats with unknown consequences for reproduction. With regard to rationing, the need for rationing healthcare in pandemic times ethically focuses on four fundamental values maximizing benefits in situations of scarce resources, treating people equally, promoting and rewarding instrumental value, and giving priority to those who are most effective. The document discussed the ASRM COVID-19 task force initial recommendations, which were, I think, all keenly aware of, and rationale for temporarily pausing fertility care as in line with directing healthcare resources to the front lines, though we know the chaos that this created. Public health crises often require a framework shift in which patient autonomy is balanced with the need to safeguard the health of the community as a whole. The document also discusses that at the core of this conflict was that many patients and physicians felt that reproductive medicine was at risk for being overlooked. 
The document reinforces, as did the task force, that reproduction is an essential human right that exists regardless of race or sexual orientation. Public health responses should strive to minimize health inequalities and resume fertility services when safe and feasible to do so. And also, we should work towards protecting ART services against future disruption. The document discusses that healthcare organizations are major employers and they have interest in securing the health of the workforce. And it is ethically acceptable for clinics to mandate vaccination against the disease for their employees. Finally, the document discusses the challenges of evolving healthcare threats with unknown consequences for reproduction. New viruses present challenges that we will not know and understand the potential impact of the virus on the pregnant person or the fetus. While individuals have the right to make decisions about reproduction without influences from others, clinicians are entitled to feel that it's out of their scope or comfort to assist with reproductive treatment in the setting of public health threats that could have effects on future offspring. And finally, safe inclusion in research of patients who are pregnant or attempting to conceive should be a priority in the face of emerging public health challenges with the goal of providing data to this patient population for informed decision-making in the face of a healthcare crisis. The lack of inclusion of pregnant patients in the COVID-19 vaccine trials did far more harm than good. Overall, this is an excellent document that will no doubt be referenced in discussions of the COVID-19 pandemic, but also in future pandemics that sadly are predicted to emerge. And I truly hope that we are at the tail end of the pandemic and looking backwards with the thought of learning from that to look forward to the future. The next document in the ASRM pages is also a really interesting one. It's called Cross-Border Reproductive Care and Ethics Committee Opinion. This document replaces the one that was published in 2016, and I love the first sentence, and I want to read it verbatim. Infertility knows no political boundaries, but prevailing policies, costs, and laws within an individual country can hamper access to treatment. I think that's really powerful and says a lot. Cross-border reproductive care refers to the activities surrounding the patients who travel outside of their country of residence to seek ART services and treatment. More patients come to the U.S. and seek care here than leave the U.S. to seek care. But the document provides both European and U.S. statistics for both of these metrics, but notes that the volume of cross-border care is really difficult to estimate given the lack of robust reporting systems outside of the U.S., the document discusses the four reasons that patients generally choose cross-border reproductive care, which is abbreviated CBRC, access, cost, regulation, and cultural comfort, which is also linked to privacy. Some patients have failed treatments in their home country and seek care in countries with better technology. Some patients travel to reduce the cost of fertility care, and it must be acknowledged that cross-border treatments have higher rates of multiple pregnancy and this ultimately may lead to higher health care and parenting costs. The jurisdictions with restrictive laws are more likely to serve as the departure countries where countries with fewer legal restrictions are patronized as destination countries. ART regulations that motivate the use of cross-border care fall under two broad categories. One is restriction on who can access fertility care, and this may impact patients of a certain age, those that are single, unmarried couples, or sexual orientation may also be a barrier to accessing care in certain countries. And the second is restrictions on what care can be accessed. And some countries have prohibitions on donor gametes, surrogacy, PGT, or sex selection may drive patients across borders. The document also discusses that countries who prohibit donor compensation have scarce access and patients are motivated to go elsewhere. There are many downsides of treatment abroad. There can be complications that arise and patients may have poor access to experts equipped to deal with complications upon returning home. There may be an inability to give informed consent in different language. If a patient is harmed by treatment abroad, access to legal recourse may be difficult. And there have been bait and switches reported where patients travel to other countries for donor oocytes only to discover years later that the child bears no resemblance to the selected donor 
and the donor was not actually the one that the couple had initially selected. Additional harms, and we're seeing this with Ukraine, may come in the way of evolving jurisdiction that may result in the inability to remove a newborn from the destination country. We also saw that with the COVID-19 pandemic. And in times when international travel is challenging, it may be impossible for the gestational carrier to actually transfer the offspring she's been carrying to the prospective parents. This was a big issue early in 2020, and many gestational carriers were left caring for these children for months after delivery until the IPs were able to travel. The document also outlines the duty of care of the treating physician in the home country to resume care of the patient who receives cross-border care. If there are insurance contracts at play, these physicians may be contractually obligated, but if there are no insurance contracts at play, then this is voluntary. And one can either take that patient back or refer that patient to another willing practice. Both are ethically acceptable options. For the destination country physicians, the physician's duty is to provide high quality medical care and accurate treatment does not include a duty to investigate the reproductive laws that the patient may be fleeing from. Physicians who treat ART patients from abroad have a duty to deliver the same quality of care required for all domestic patients. And I think particularly true for cross-border care, referral to qualified experts, including legal and mental health professionals, should be encouraged when appropriate. I would encourage all of our listeners to read this document to gain a better understanding of the factors at play when considering cross-border reproductive care. I think it's something that we see quite frequently given the high cost of ART in the States and given the restrictions on same-sex reproduction in many other countries. And I think it's something that's only becoming more and more prevalent. Thanks, Eve. Now let's get to some original articles. Kurt, tell us about this article entitled Effectiveness and Safety of IUI versus ART. It's got some fun methods. Thanks, Pietro. I'm glad you assigned me this article as well, because this is a study I think we can learn a lot from. This is um, not your everyday study, and I hope that we can pay attention to some of the methods, not just the results. So the article is entitled Effectiveness and Safety of Intrauterine Insemination Versus Assisted Reproductive Technology, Emulating a Target Trial Using an Observational Data Set of Administrative Claims. So there's two really important questions here. One, we're revisiting this idea of the relative success of three IUIs versus going directly to IVF. But we're also talking about this concept of emulating a clinical trial. And can we actually get similar answers from large databases that we can actually get from a clinical trial, which we all know clinical trials are exceedingly rare and exceedingly expensive and sometimes um, very unethical to do. So as I mentioned, this is an old question. Um, ASRM has a guideline on this. Richard Reindoler got his uh, appropriate name and fame in his uh, FAST trial and 40 trial, where he actually managed to randomize women to this. And there's a trial in Europe as well that was a little bit larger that also looked at um, maternal and neonatal outcomes. So the advantage of this trial is revisiting that, but also having much more power to be able to look further and with more detail into the maternal and neonatal outcomes. So how does one emulate a clinical trial, I guess, is the first question. So when you have an advantage of a large database like this, and this database is the market scan database, which has a huge number of people, over 100 million data points on people with insurance. It's not a single insurance. It's actually a conglomerate of insurance. So people that have Blue Cross at the same time that have HMOs are all in this kind of nationwide database. So the advantage of a large trial like this is you have a lot of patients using real-world data. Data, what actually happened, what people are filing claims for, what kind of practice people um, actually conducted. So to emulate a trial, one has to uh, go through a couple of different um, thought processes. The most important, I think, is defining the eligibility criteria. So you can take your 100 million people and narrow it down by fitting the inclusion criteria of the randomized trial. So you can, for example, put age on it, 18 to 35. You could eliminate people that had prior history of IUI or had prior history of ART. You could eliminate pre-existing conditions. All the things we do in randomized trial, you can do in this database. Then you have to define the treatment strategies. That's an intellectual exercise, which is kind of fun. I'm going to compare three cycles of IUI versus one cycle of IVF. And that's usually pretty easy in a large-scale database because you can look at the diagnostic codes and you can find out what people have. 
you then have to uh, assign them treatments. And this is where it gets a little complicated because you really can't randomize them to that, but you have to make an assumption or at least test your assumption that a relatively large amount of these people would have gone to each one of the treatment arms if they had a choice. Again, it's not randomized and we'll get back to that. Then you can again find the outcomes um, sometimes more easily um, in a database like this than what we're used to doing. For example, the SART database doesn't really follow children, so we, we're limited. But a market scan database like this can follow the complications for the mothers and also for the children, and therefore allowing you to have a much larger follow-up. Now, you might remember in a randomized control trial, there's two ways to do it. There's something called intention to treat and per protocol. What you can do is you can use the same concept here. So intention to treat means you put them into their intention to have three cycles of IUI versus their intention to have one cycle of IVF. But not everybody actually does that. But you can still keep them in that arm because they were intended to be and find out what the outcomes are. Or you can actually go what's called per protocol and you actually see who got pregnant with the IUIs and who got pregnant with, with um, IVF. And in this study, they actually do both. So before I get too detailed into the methods, let me quickly tell you what it showed. Uh, it basically showed that the probability of live birth between three cycles of IUI and one cycle of IVF was actually pretty close. It was 27.3 uh, one group and 26.3 in the other. It slightly favored IVF but not by much. But what's important to me was that IVF also was more likely to have many of the other outcomes, some of which were not desirable. For example, the chance of multiple birth was 4% higher. The chance of preterm delivery was 3% or 3.5% higher. The chance of NICU was 1.5% higher. And there was even a higher chance of gestational diabetes. So in a nutshell, IVF was successful, but had more complications. So that's an important aspect to know. Perhaps we knew this because there's so much other data on, um, you know, the associations of childhood outcomes with IVF. But, you know, to put it in this perspective is really, really important. It also confirmed some other things that we, we had. It also confirmed, for example, the 40 trial that the success was actually higher or even more high, however you conjugate that verb in women that are over 40. So confirming ASRM's recommendations that um, at least in a more advanced maternal age that IVF is actually more successful. But there's a lot of other things that I wanted to just bring your attention to that I thought was really fascinating. First of all, um, with all this work and all of this definitional thing, less than 50% of people were actually stayed in their protocol, which means that as clinicians across the country, we do not think this way. We don't say go directly to IVF or go directly to three IUIs. You know, 30 or 40% of people actually follow that paradigm, which again tells you how hard it would be to do a randomized trial to force people into something that they wouldn't do on their own. So what are the limitations of a study like this? Because I had to kind of usher this one through because many of the reviewers were not really comfortable with a study like this because of some limitations. Yes, it is hard to correctly identify every person that went through the treatment because, I'll be blunt, we don't really code with that's 100% in reality what, what happened. I'm not saying it's fraud. I'm just saying that we don't really pay attention to the code. We just put down a code to get paid. We don't really have the specificity we would for a research database. And that might give you something called bias to the null. We also have to recognize that as well done as this study was in terms of its definitions and its statistical analysis and its controlling, we still didn't have randomized patients. And there's still the potential for confounding by indication, meaning we don't really understand why a couple or a patient decided to go through treatment A or treatment B. When you get something as large as this, that perhaps that's less of a problem than many of us think, uh, and it can be handled statistically, but still it's not 100% accurate. But it gives us a really good understanding of what's going on, and it gives us real-world data. What did I find out that was different in this real-world data? I found out, first of all, IVF was not as successful as we think it is. Across the country, one cycle of IVF was giving you a live birth rate in the high 20s, not 40, not 50, not 60. So, you know, we're not very good with IVF. And secondly, there were more twins with IVF than there were for IUI. I mean, we keep arguing about how we identify all these twins with IUI because we can't predict who's going to have multiple ovulations and things. But in reality, at least in this time frame, we were still resulting in more twins 
with IVF than we were for IUI. Now, I, I think that might change because this did work with relatively old data, like more than 10 years old, but it still tells you that real-world data is different from what we see in a clinical trial. So what do we learn from this trial? Well, I think all of us look at those randomized trials and we learn from it and it affects our care, but then we really do whatever we want or what the patient wants. And sometimes, therefore, there's a different reality in our head than what's happening across the country. And when you get a glimpse like this, it really tells you some important things. One, fertility is about the same, whether you have three cycles of IUI or IVF, and it still looks like IVF is more complicated and has more morbidity than conception with an IUI. And I don't think we should forget that. At least our patients shouldn't forget that. So what do you guys think of this paper? I think one thing that's important to point out about this data set, and I've used MarketScan before, but MarketScan is a national database of insurance claims. So people accessing IUI or ERT are doing it with insurance. This is not the average patient who walks into your clinic who doesn't have access if you're in a non-mandated state. So you have to take that with a grain of salt when you're extrapolating, for sure. And then what Kurt said, this is a claims database. It is not a research database. The missingness of variables is quite large, having looked at the data quite granularly. And then just the error rate for some of the stuff that's put in there. Claims databases are meant for getting money back, not for generating really high quality research data. So all of those, I think, limit my ability to be super excited about the the findings of this study. But I really like the methodology, which is why I'm glad that you talked about it, Kurt. The authors of this paper have published recently in the Journal of Epidemiology about how to do this target trial emulation and are really pointing out that there's a way to do this well and there's a way to do this poorly. And if randomized trials are so hard and expensive to do, but we're really amassing these very large data sets from claims, from health systems, and hopefully also for research, this is a way that we can arrive at some kind of truth and solve some of the questions that we have without doing these big randomized trials. So really interesting methodology. Yeah, I agree with that. And I think just to put a little bit of a plug in for IUI, I can't tell you how often I see the patient who's been trying to conceive for less than a year. They see me as a second opinion. They're a 31-year-old who went straight to IVF, found that IVF was not successful. And I'm just always baffled that they kind of skipped that IUI step. And I, I don't think that IUI is the right answer in women who are over 40 but I, I do still think there's a role, and I think these data do lend some credo to that, that there, there is a role still for IUI in the treatment, particularly of ovulatory dysfunction and unexplained infertility. Let me end this on, this was a really excellent methodologic paper. Miguel Hernan, who is the senior author, is you know, one of the leading epidemiologists in this field. And he, if you ever want to learn how to do a paper properly, re- read his paper or his many other papers in the New England Journal of Medicine. I also want to plug that I think this, we're going to, we need to do this more. We, we need to use the data available to us, just like Google uses the data for making predictions for things, because we can't do a randomized trial on, on everything. And even though the data might not be 100% perfect, it's still better than not having the data and thinking we know the answer without the study being done. Talking about other prospective trials that we could never do, there's an, an article in this month's FNS entitled The Effect of COVID-19 Immunity on Frozen Thought Embryo Transfer Cycle Outcomes. Eve, tell us a little bit about that article. I think by now we all know that coronavirus disease is caused by a single positive strand RNA virus that has a spike protein, a membrane protein, an envelope protein, nucleic acids, hemagglutinin, esterase dimers, and then the virus's own genetic material. The spike protein is responsible for the high affinity of SARS-CoV-2 for the human ACE2 receptor after viral entry into the cells. Some studies have focused on gene expression of ACE2 in the endometrium to determine whether there's any effect on endometrial function. And that's really what this study tried to get at. The study was done by Azer and colleagues out of Israel, and they sought to determine whether there was any effect of either COVID infection or COVID vaccination on the endometrium by studying the pregnancy rate after frozen embryo transfer. They included 428 patients who underwent 672 frozen embryo transfer cycles, and they compared outcomes among patients with immunity versus those treated in the same time frame without immunity 
and also a historic cohort. And the study group was a combination of patients with immunity who either had immunity from infection or immunity from vaccination. And there were 26 patients with immunity from infection and 115 from vaccination. Comparison groups were those not infected and not vaccinated. And it was a small study. There were 93 patients with no immunity who received treatment in the same study period and 194 patients with no immunity who received treatment prior to the pandemic. And what they looked at was evaluated outcomes between any of the groups, especially ongoing pregnancy rate per transfer. So I think this paper adds to the existing knowledge that vaccination is safe. And I would love to see the same group publish a follow-up of this paper with live birth rate data. And all in all, we can say that the findings of this add support to all the recommendations for vaccination in those planning pregnancy. Pietro? I think I completely agree with you. I'd love to see a follow-up, but in the follow-up are people who are trying to emulate this study or trying to answer the question about does COVID-19 infection or immunity truly impact our ability to reproduce, I think it's important to ascertain these groups by serology. We're going on patient report of having had an infection, and we're going on a patient report of never having had an infection. And we've, I think, come to realize how unreliable that can be, especially with asymptomatic positive infections. And then the other part that I think is missing is just the severity of disease. In patients who are critically ill, is their response to subsequent attempts at reproduction different than patients who have that very mild runny nose, scratchy throat? So I think it's nice to have data. It'd be even nicer to have really high-quality data just to build on that, one thing that this paper did not do is it didn't look at the time frame from infection to frozen embryo transfer. And there may be a difference in those who have an acute infection with regard to ACE2 expression in the endometrium versus those that had a remote infection and subsequent improvement in, uh, in response. And so, uh, again, I think this is like the tip of the tip of the iceberg just lending a little bit more gravitas and a little bit more credit to the recommendation for vaccination. But I would love to see more data. And really, I would just love to see this pandemic completely behind us. I I just want to add one other comment. Um, We can always find fault with a paper and we can always find small aspects that make it less credible. But um, I think we've got to also flip it around a little bit and say, look, despite the fact that this might not be truly precise in its findings, there's no major findings here. So rather than start with the thought process that this paper must be wrong and for all of the reasons it didn't get the right answer, we should start with, look, there doesn't seem to be a huge answer here. You know, maybe we're not 100% precise on that answer, but, you know, don't cloud the judgment with doubt and then people don't believe the findings. I meant that more as a political statement than I did on this paper, but you follow what I'm saying. Yeah, and I I totally appreciate it. And I feel like as someone who's been on the task force for the last two years, chasing every paper and every nugget of data, we were really faced at the very beginning of this pandemic with grave uncertainty as to what the impact of COVID-19 would be. What would the impact of viral infection be on the fetus? What would it be on the mother? What would it be on those who are considering pregnancy. And I think that the combination of many different studies that each are small pieces have chipped away and gotten us to a much better understanding. And so I I agree with that, that you have to take them for what they are and appreciate what you learn from each study. And that's certainly what we have done on the task force is really collate all of those studies to make our recommendations. And I think it's it's easy to look back and say, well, I would have loved this and I would have loved that. But I think it is also good to say, I really commend the authors for asking the question and as rigorously with the tools available, trying to answer that specific question. Yeah, it's the scientific equivalent of don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Just because the study wasn't perfect and can't answer every question can't answer every question doesn't mean you discount the study. You take it for its worth. I feel like today, if the study isn't perfect or you can find one minor flaw with it, everything gets thrown out and say, Well, see, we don't know. There's no answer. That's that's not the that's not the answer here. This is a very reassuring study. 
for whatever reason, this month's Fertility and Sterility podcast has two articles where we're talking about removing ovaries. I have an article entitled Live Birth and Pregnancy Rates After IVF, ICSI, and Women with Previous Unilateral Oophorectomy, a Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis by Rodriguez Wahlberg et al. from Stockholm, Sweden. So there's a small body of literature that has implied a negative impact of unilateral oophorectomy on ovarian sensitivity, meaning some studies have shown that you need higher amounts of gonadotropins in IVF and you retrieve fewer number of oocytes compared to controls with two ovaries. Some studies have suggested that there's a compensatory hypertrophy of the remaining ovary via intra and extra ovarian signaling when you lose one of those gonads. This theory is supported by some studies that have shown increased or maintained serum levels of AMH after oophorectomy, but clearly this isn't full compensation because we know that women who have a unilateral oophorectomy do in fact have earlier menopauses, on average one whole year earlier than women with two ovaries. But given that there's enough Maybe the ovary does compensate studies out there. The authors decided to conduct a meta-analysis and see if they can arrive at some truth via the aggregation of data. The authors of this review reviewed 3,900 articles to identify 18 retrospective studies that included a total of 1,057 women who had a unilateral oophorectomy, who then underwent IVF and ICSI, with 45,000 controls who had two ovaries. They wanted to look at the amount of gonadotropins used the number of oocytes retrieved, as well as the pregnancy and live birth rate per cycle. So what did they find? For gonadotropins, they found that using a random effects model, women with unilateral oophorectomy use significantly higher levels of gonadotropins, about 400 IUs more on average. However, the authors are quick to point out that there's a ton of heterogeneity in protocols, as well as just total gonadotropins used in these 18 studies spanning nearly three decades. Similarly, women with a history of unilateral oophorectomy had significantly lower number of retrieved oocytes, about two less on average, compared to women with two ovaries once you divide by two. For both of these outcomes, the relationship held true when they stratified by an agonist versus antagonist protocol. But what about pregnancy and live birth? You guessed it, for both pregnancy and live birth, they found that when aggregated together, women with unilateral oophorectomy had on average 30% lower odds of achieving pregnancy or live birth per cycle. There's a really nice accompanying inkling by Jan Tesserich from Granada, Spain, that raises an interesting point, which I hadn't considered when reading, but I wanted to highlight here. To what extent are the poor IVF outcomes after unilateral oophorectomy from the intervention itself or the underlying indication for which the unilateral oophorectomy was performed? Endometriosis, for example, has been shown to impair fertility in and of itself, even without ovarian involvement. The authors, unfortunately, were not able to stratify based on the indication for unilateral oophorectomy, but that certainly would help better examine this point raised by the author of the inkling. So in summary, it appears that a history of unilateral oophorectomy is associated with needing more medications, having fewer eggs retrieved, as well as a lower pregnancy and live birth rate when compared to controls with two ovaries. One of the questions that I had for the group after reading this article, we periodically do get patients who have one ovary, either the result of torsion, a major cystectomy that unfortunately ended up with most of, if not all of the ovary removed. How does this group manage these patients differently during an IVF cycle and peri procedure? Does your concern for torsion increase in having that remaining ovary impacted? Do you treat these patients with antibiotics just because in the event that there's an infection in that ovary, you don't want, you want to try to minimize the risk of an infection? Do you do anything differently for these patients, Eva, Kurt? I don't think I do. I think I treat them similarly with the facts presented to me. Again, this is a, a nice study in that it confirms what I think I already knew. I'm not saying I'm intuitive of anything, but, but the fact is that the one remaining ovary doesn't totally compensate for the, re- the removal of the other ovary. But Really, what that means is you counsel appropriately and you might need to give a slightly higher dose. But other than that, IVF is conducted pretty much in the same way. Yeah, I I agree with you, except I would have loved to see, now I'm hesitant to, to say my negative points, but I would have loved to see whether or not there was any correlation with the reason why that ovary was removed as to whether or not the response was lower. My guess is that if you have an ovary that's removed for something like endometriosis that has a high prevalence of affecting both ovaries that you are in fact going to see lower reserve and lower response in those patients. 
But if you have an ovary removed for a different indication that may not be bilateral, that you may not see the same effect. And I, I, I think it's mixed. I've definitely seen patients in my practice who um, have one ovary and get 30 eggs from one remaining ovary. And so I, I take this with a grain of salt. I do believe it, but I think it also really speaks to the underlying pathology at play. I don't think that's damning the study, Eve. I think that's just that there's more specificity that one study can't provide. Um, but, you know, that one person that got 30 eggs, you know, would she have gotten 60 if she had two ovaries or would she still have gotten 30 eggs? You know, it's, we'll never know that one. Continue with the theme of big studies. This month, Finesse has a great article entitled Chromosomal Abnormalities of 19,000 Couples with Recurrent Spontaneous Abortion multi-center study by Park et al. from South Korea. As we all know, the etiology of recurrent miscarriages vary, ranging from anatomic malformations, endocrine abnormalities, to genetic abnormalities. Approximately 3 to 8% are a result of parental chromosomal abnormalities. Several small studies have littered the literature attempting to describe the relationships between chromosomal abnormalities and recurrent miscarriage couples by gender, aberration, type, and age. However, most have been too small in numbers to draw meaningful conclusions. The authors of this study retrospectively reviewed cytogenetic testing data from 2005 to 2020 from five hospitals in South Korea. These 19,000 couples were presenting for genetic evaluation of recurrent miscarriage after having had a negative uterine, infectious, autoimmune, and endocrine workup. These 19,000 couples all underwent G-band keratyping performed with 20 to 50 metaphase sets examined per patient with a resolution down about 500 bands. The author sought to examine the correlation between the demographic data of these couples and the types of chromosomal aberrations encountered. The authors classified these aberrations into two large bucket categories, one being structural, our balanced reciprocal, our Robertsonian deletions, inversions, and duplications, and two into numerical aberrations, mosaicism, the presence of marker chromosomes, and non-mosaic aneuploidies. So what did they find? Let me first share with you some fun facts. The mean age of women in the study was 36.9, and for males was 37.3. Of these men and women, 45% had a history of two prior abortions, 36 had three prior, 12 had four prior, and 6% of this large cohort had five or more miscarriages. In total, chromosomal abnormations were detected in either male or females in 844 individuals out of the 19,000, so about 4.4%. Most were in females, 53%. And of those aberrations detected, females were on average three years younger, whereas males were two years younger than those without aberrations detected. Interestingly, the number of abortions was not significantly different between couples with and without these chromosomal abnormations. The authors also stratified these 19,000 couples on whether or not the couple had no children, children with abnormal physical features, or previously normal appearing offspring. And they found that there was a significant increase in rates of chromosomal abnormalities with the highest rates being seen in couples without children. Most of common aberration encountered in this study were the structural kind, 83% versus 17% who had numerical aberrations. Of those structural ones, the most common were balanced Robertsonian translocations. One fun point, if you're looking at the figures in the manuscript, the frequency of balanced translocations decreased according to the numerical order of the autosomal chromosomes. I suspect that this is due to the fact that the larger chromosomes have a larger target size for double-stranded breaks and repair. For the 137 individuals who had numerical aberrations, again, this was the smallest of the group, Mosaicism was the most common. They encountered mosaic turners, they encountered mosaic triple X, and mosaic down syndromes as their most common types in females. In males, mosaic Kleinfelters and mosaic XYYs were the most common. So there's a lot of data in this paper, which I think is really, really useful for counseling for us, for the genetic counselors. But my three big takeaways that I want our listeners to remember are that in couples with recurrent pregnancy loss or miscarriage, both structural and numerical aberrations appear to be more common in females than in men. Patients with chromosomal aberrations reach that second pregnancy loss threshold on average two to three years sooner than those who don't. 
and chromosomal abnormalities were more frequently detected in couples who have not previously had children compared to couples with a history of a prior normal offspring. Wonderful data, though. I, I, I love the fact that you can, again, use big data. There isn't a comparison here, but still learning real prevalence of things like this is, is important for us all to know. Yeah, and five, roughly 5% is, is not insignificant. I always heard the statistic previously that translocations are about 7% of parental um, karyotypes in patients with recurrent pregnancy loss, but this this shows something a little bit different. And I would love to see this in other populations to see is this, can you take the population from Korea and can you extrapolate that to a Caucasian European population or an African population? Um, but I think that it was a really, really well done study. Just very interesting to see how it all broke down in terms of the percentages of Robertsonian versus balanced translocations and the interesting sex chromosome abnormalities that led to um, that led to miscarriage and also some of the inversions that they described. I, I really think that this is, especially for trainees, I think this is an excellent paper to get a better handle on how to counsel patients on RPL regarding realistic expectations of what we can see when we do a karyotype and the types of karyotype abnormalities that we encounter. This is an awesome counseling paper. The figures, I think, are outstanding and really tell a very nice story. And I love a figure that tells a story. This is that paper. So I think if our listeners are looking for a nice journal club article where you could have a nice figure up on the screen while you talk about something, I think this is a paper that worth is worth a second look. Now, going from big data to small data, Kurt, you have our next article in the reproductive science section looking at cholesterol trafficking in steroid biosynthesis. Yeah, I had to, a lot of preparation for, for this podcast. I'm going all over the gamut here from epidemiology to simulating trials to now basic science. But this has been a lot of fun. And again, that's what we hope to bring you in, in fertility and sterility. So this article is titled Cholesterol Uptake or Trafficking Steroid Biosynthesis and Gonadotropin Responsiveness Are Defective in Young Poor Responders. The article is by Dr. Bildick as a first author and Dr. Oktem as a senior author. And it's a large collaboration, including investigators in the MD Cancer Center in Texas, as well as um, the School of Medicine in Istanbul, Turkey. So... This paper, you have to think a little bit because the title can mislead you a little bit. This isn't this isn't DOR. This is actually poor responders, and we have to pay attention to that. So the goal of this was to investigate whether poor ovarian response in young women, in this case under 35, the paper restricted them to, um, involves lesser follicle growth, or whether there's intrinsic perturbations actually in ovarian steroidogenesis or other pathways in the ovary. So this translational research group took 40 patients, 20 quote-unquote normal and 20 with, that are considered poor responders. Um, they looked at their um, granulosa cells. They had some very elegant methods where they took these luteolized granulosa cells in cell culture and then were able to really interrogate the stereobiosynthesis. They used multiple methodologies. And if for, for the science geeks, this is a great paper to look at. Um, everything from uh, real-time PCR to immunoblotting to confocal time-lapse, live imaging, as well as um, standard hormone assays. So results basically point to the fact that it's just not a fewer number of eggs, that the actual ovarian follicle component in these young patients with poor response is actually somehow limited. So it's, it looks like there are some intrinsic defects in these poor responders. Most notably, it's in expression in low-density lipoprotein receptors, but it's also multiple steps, including the 3-beta-hydroxysteroid dehydrogenase enzyme, as well as the star protein um, made famous by one of my mentors here at Penn, Jerry Strauss. So this is an elegant paper, as Pietro mentioned, elegant methods, wonderful figures. Uh, I would, would encourage your journal club, but it's going to induce more questions than it answers. So this study demonstrates that poor ovarian response in young individuals should not simply be regarded as lesser follicle growth, but actually um, that there's pathogenic mechanisms which appear to make this much more complex. Now, 
to understand this fully, we have to go back to um, those really terrible days in the, on our, when we had to sit for our boards and we had to memorize the steroid pathway. I don't know if we all remember that it's actually cholesterol that's circulating through our system that then has to get into the granulosa cell cytoplasm, then be moved over to the um, mitochondria, and then through a series of enzymatic steps that we have nightmares about trying to regurgitate to our board examiners is turned into um, estrogen and progesterone, and then you know estradiol and, and different various of progesterone. So it looks like it's it's the backstop is it's the cholesterol metabolism in these people, and that can lead to lesser steroidogenesis. What it doesn't answer to me, though, is does that mean the follicle is of lesser quality and the egg is of, of lesser ability to result in a live birth? Or is it simply that you have lower demonstrable parameters and that's why we give them higher dosage and sometimes the, the higher dose doesn't actually affect more eggs? Um, so there's more, again, there's lots of questions here, but it does go back to one of our previous podcasts about how it's going to complicate our definitions of things like poor responders and DOR, because it's it's probably much more than simply how many follicles did you make, because it looks like there might be different reasons to have a low number of follicles. It might actually be truly a lower number of eggs, decreased ovarian reserve, but it might also be that the physiology of follicular genesis is altered in some women, resulting in a different pattern when we do IVF. When I read this article, Kurt, and heard your explanation, the, the thing that I kept thinking about, to me, I think this may explain a little bit about why we see so many of these adjuncts that we give in IVF cycles for our patients with poor response, DHEA, CoQ10, um, you name it, why some of these really don't move the needle a whole heck of a lot for these patients. It's not just about getting an extra follicle here or there. This study is pointing towards the follicles that we have just aren't great ones and aren't responding in a normal fashion. It may be improving their function and not necessarily their number may provide a more meaningful benefit to some of these patients. Right, but it may also be that you intrinsically have fewer follicles and therefore you have less of a response. Like it may not be that the response per follicle is blunted, but just that you have fewer follicles leading to a lesser response. It's like, what comes first, the, the gonadotropin or the egg? Right. And if you do have abnormal steratogenesis in your follicle, does that necessarily mean that you know, you're not going to get pregnant? Or does it mean that we need to treat them differently or we need to categorize them differently? I mean, there's, there's, again, please read the, the wonderful inkling by Dr. Pietra Ayubabi and Wachowski, which really go through that whole idea, which is, this is a very good paper to say that not all patients with low ovarian response are the same. It may be akin to diabetes. Not, not, not everybody, it's a complex disease. Not everybody gets there in the same way. Um, and our definitions are, for lack of a better word, rudimentary, because really all we're doing is defining this group by their response when there could be many reasons that they're having a poor response. Right, and I think it really argues that that it's a symptom of a larger problem and not the disease in and of itself. And I think we we tend to think of DOR as as a as a disease state in and of itself, but it really may be a symptom of something like a steroidogenic pathway insufficiency. It's not folliculopenia, if you will. <laughs> is right. that a new word? <laughs> I'm coining it now. Let the record reflect folliculopenia. Are you going to patent the use? Yeah, but you are, but you are seeing the science evolve, and that's again the purpose of scientific um, literature. That you're, you're, you know, we are challenging assumptions that um, not all women with with low number of eggs are the same, and that there might be lots of reasons they get there, and one of them might be biosynthesis and steroidogenesis. Rounding out this month's issue is an article entitled "Route of Myomectomy and Fertility." a prospective cohort study by Lauren Wise and the CompareUF team. For those unfamiliar, CompareUF is a multi-site national registry of women with symptomatic uterine fibroids who were prospectively followed before and after their various interventions for uterine fibroids. The goal was to prospectively compare the effectiveness of different surgical and interventional treatments on patient reported outcomes post-operatively and for a three-year period afterwards using validated patient-specific surveys. I had the privilege of participating in this study as a resident to enroll patients in our resident clinic and have since been working on a few manuscripts using the data set. And it's a really rich 
data source with some really smart people organizing it. And I'm glad that we're starting to see more papers come from this monumental effort. The authors of this specific study sought to use the CompareUF data to compare sociodemographic and clinical factors between those opting for either abdominal, hysteroscopic, or laparoscopic myomectomy. The primary event of interest in this study were the time from index procedure to the occurrence of first pregnancy and first live birth during that three-year follow-up period. Because of the observational design, the authors used inverse propensity weighting to adjust for confounding. A propensity score was estimated using a multinomial regression model with myomectomy route as the dependent variable and a host of potential patient-level confounders such as age, BMI, ethnicity, prior fibroid-related interventions, among many others. So what did they find? Well, to start off, there were some differences between the groups. Those that underwent abdominal myomectomy were on average younger, nulliparous, and had larger uterine volumes at surgery and were more commonly African-American. They were also more likely to be currently trying to conceive or intending to conceive within the next two years. In total, the authors were able to analyze 1,095 women who reported 202 pregnancies and 91 live births. The authors did not find any appreciable differences in the probability of pregnancy or live birth by route of myomectomy after adjusting for the potential patient demographics, reproductive history, as well as uterine volumes. The authors very wisely kicked out the hysteroscopic myomectomy group for one of their subgroup analyses and compared laparoscopic directly to abdominal myomectomy and found that still there were no differences in pregnancy or live birth rates between the two modalities within that follow-up period. I think there are several important limitations to a study that uses CompareUF data just by nature of how prospective cohort studies are designed and organized. First, you can never really eliminate residual confounding. So many of the demographic characteristics that are more common among women with severe uterine fibroids, be it later reproductive age, African ancestry, high BMI, these also tend to be risk factors for adverse reproductive outcomes such as infertility and miscarriage. Propensity score weighting, as the authors performed in this study, helps to minimize this, but never fully eliminates it. Second, the CompareUF data is collected from a convenient sample of a handful of academic sites across the United States. The prevalence of myomectomy subtypes, patient demographics may not necessarily represent the general population, particularly when you consider that one of the inclusion criteria were you had to have symptomatic uterine fibroids. And finally, the part that I think is raised by Dr. Monroe and his inkling associated with this article, the number and location of fibroids came from clinical imaging and operative reports that were abstracted using standardized forms. Unfortunately, this meant that most fibroids were categorized into the rudimentary subgroups of submucous, intramural, and subserosal, rather than, I think, the more universally accepted FIGO classification that provides much more detail on the potential impact of the endometrium when considering fertility as an outcome. So in summary, the study indicated that the probability of pregnancy or live birth during the three-year follow-up period did not differ appreciably according to the surgical route of myomectomy, particularly when comparing abdominal versus laparoscopic, and once we accounted for pretreatment differences in patient characteristics using the propensity score weighting. You know, what I would have liked to see as a comparison group, I would have liked to see women who had fibroids that did not undergo surgery and looking at some of those Kaplan-Meier survival analysis to see time to pregnancy and whether or not having a myomectomy really improved time to pregnancy over expected management. I think the problem is the inclusion criteria for this study is that you had to have symptomatic uterine fibroids. And it may be that there's a portion of symptomatic women who choose not to undergo a surgical intervention and opt for a medical treatment. Um, but I think a little bit of how they chose to recruit women or women who had an intention for be it myomectomy, uterine artery embolization, radiofrequency ablation of their fibroids, and all, always, always at large academic centers where a lot of these subspecialists were available and willing to consult and perform these procedures. Right. And I think it was symptomatic women who, who wanted fertility, but I, I, I still think that, you know, it answers the question. There's probably not a difference if you select your surgery correctly between laparoscopic and open, which is, I think, really the question they were trying to answer. But I think the, you know, the age-old question of do we operate on fibroids, when do we operate on fibroids, and why do we operate, what's the benefit, more data are still needed there. 
But I really do commend the authors on an impressive study and good study design to look at some of those questions. What I like best about this study was um, recognizing their own limitations in the study. It, it, it's hard to do a study like this, get large-scale data with all the, the biases that we talked about. But again, this is the first step, at least in the United States, where you can actually get relatively generalized representative data. I think it'll get better with time. The questions will become more specific with time and you know we'll learn more and more. But still, this is unfortunately the best we can do here in the United States. It goes back to what I said before, I'm envious of um, databases in other countries, but um, we're getting there. All right, and that does it for this month's Fertility and Sterility On Air podcast. Kurt, Eve, always a pleasure to be here with both of you. Always a pleasure. This is your second to last podcast as a fellow. <laughs> Boy, does that sound good. And then, as I said, next month, you'll, we can look forward to having uh, Micah Hill join us again on the podcast. Until we meet again, make sure to follow us on our Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter pages to continue the conversation. And as always, these articles are available for comment and further discussion on the Fertility and Sterility Dialogue website. And please don't hesitate to contact us. We're all accessible. We'd love to hear your feedback of what you'd like us to talk about on these podcasts um, or what we don't want us to talk about. So I hope you enjoy it. I hope you learned something and uh, let us know what you want to hear more. We'll see everyone in June. Bye. Until next time. Bye-bye. This concludes our episode of Fertility and Sterility On Air. Brought to you by the Fertility and Sterility Family of Journals in conjunction with the American Society for Reproductive Medicine. This podcast was developed by Fertility and Sterility and the American Society for Reproductive Medicine as an educational resource and service to its members and other practicing clinicians. While the podcast reflects the views of the authors and the hosts, it is not intended to be the only approved standard of practice or to direct an exclusive course of treatment. The opinions expressed are those of the discussants and do not reflect fertility and sterility or the American Society for Reproductive Medicine.